Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. As Christians, we believe that the peace of Christ is a central teaching of Christianity. And this raises the question, how do we read the Old Testament depiction of God and kind of warrior deity, the promotion of even genocide and killing. And what I am going to look at today is the way the New Testament teaches us to read these sections of scripture and to read them as applying spiritually. This is how Paul, John, Hebrews read the Old Testament. And the principle is that Christ is our guide. Christ is our interpretive key in reading the Bible to ensure that we draw the correct lesson. That is, if it's true of Christ, it's true of God. That all that Christ is, is who God is. And so Paul, in the section I'll read here from Galatians chapter 4, tells us these things are told allegorically for our edification as Christians. Let's read from verse 21 of chapter 4. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. And so Paul is not only giving us an allegorical reading, But he is suggesting the true lesson of the law. And by the word law, we just mean the Pentateuch. We mean certainly the first five books of the Old Testament. But he's reading it allegorically. And the New Testament uses battle imagery. It uses legal imagery, family imagery, psychological imagery. To describe what Paul is describing here, there is a universal enslavement and emancipation. And that's Paul's point in this section. And part of the reason for this metaphorical language throughout Scripture and the allegorical language here is that the problem of law and violence are so pervasive. There is no singular way of describing the problem and the solution. It's cosmic in biblical terms. It has to do with the cosmos or with language, you know, the word. It's all-encompassing so that we live in it, we speak it, and the way that the incarnation tells us the answer is going to be worked out is from the inside out. And what I mean by this, this is going to pertain to our hermeneutics or to how we read. And so Paul in this passage says, Jesus came from a woman coming to us under the law. Jesus came 
to us under the law, but we are not to fit Jesus to the law, but we're to fit the law to Jesus, right? A sacrificial theology, you know, satisfied with a dead Jesus. A, a theology that's an ethical theology, a kind of pharisaical theology, happy with a moral Jesus. Or maybe a political theology aimed at a kind of revolutionary Jesus. They all suffer from the same problem, and that is they're attempting to contain the solution, Jesus, in the problem. Paul says don't do that. They make Christ fit the law. They make Christ fit the Old Testament. They read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. Paul says no, you read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. You read the old understanding, the law, in light of Christ. And so they all suffer from fitting the answer to the problem rather than to understand the problem in light of Christ. And so if we fit Jesus to the frame of the Old Testament, he might be taken, as he often is, as just another sacrifice, another prophet, or another revolutionary. And this, I think, gets at, this explains the interpretive strategy that we just read here, but also demonstrated throughout the New Testament in its reading of the Old Testament. This is the predominant hermeneutic also of the early church, and I'll give you some examples of that. And the presumption is not only that Christ is the interpretive key to the Old Testament, but this key entails suspending a literal, flat, violent reading. That is, if we flatten it all out and we say it's all of equal authority, then we're going to reduce the authority of Christ to an understanding that we might have of the Old Testament. And so Paul, in explaining the significance of Mount Sinai, says, these things are told allegorically. And I assume we just believe Paul in what he says, that he reads the story allegorically. And very rarely does he interpret the Old Testament literally. And Paul is explaining the significance of the law. But in his explanation, He's making it clear that all people, Jews and Gentiles, they're enslaved. This is actually up in the verse 3 of chapter 4. They're enslaved to the fundamental elements. You know, the word here is a bit vague. The principles of the cosmos. The stoicia of the cosmos. And that included the law. He's saying the law is a, one of these fundamental principles. These elementary things, you know, what could it be? It may just be referring to the material elements of the world, but he's also saying it is a reference maybe to the elementary elements of language. You know, he's going to talk about the stoica as the equivalent of a child learning a language or of children being brought to Christ through the tutor, the law. It also refers to idols. And so Paul may be likening the religions of the world, including Judaism, to children's earliest lessons prior to Christ. 
much as he describes the law as a schoolboy's tutor or custodian. Maybe it's something like a deep grammar, which religion and language share with the law, and Christ is giving us an alternative grammar, an alternative word, an alternative symbolic structure. His argument in verse 8 is, if Galatians return to the law, this is the equivalent of returning to idols. He's equating the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, with a form of idolatry in light of Christianity. It is impoverished. It's among these elemental principles that are enslaving all religion. Jewish religion, in Paul's explanation, suffered from this deep elementary way of talking that enslaves all religionists prior to Christ. He's saying whether you're an idolater or you're a part of Judaism, it is of the same form of slavery. That's the story. That's that he's the allegory. He's giving us in chapter 4 to read the Old Testament and the law literally as of equal weight and as a guiding prefix to Christ would be nothing short, Paul says, of turning again to the weak and impoverished elementals and it would be to once again be enslaved. That's his lesson to the Galatians. And so Paul is teaching the Galatians that the law, including the story of Hagar, Jacob, Esau, the story of Sinai, they have a role on the order of a maidservant. Right? That's what he says at the end of this story. To treat the maidservant as if she is a free woman is to mistake freedom for bondage. To read it all as of equal weight is to treat the slave as equal to Christ. It's to treat the Old Testament as equal to the New Testament. Paul says, cast out the maidservant and her son, for by no means shall the maidservant inherit along with the free woman's son. Verse 30. The allegorical interpretive strategy puts the container of the law in its proper place. Paul says it's a tutor. It's a maidservant. It's a part of what is now counted as among the impoverished elements or elementary principles. Paul does a similar thing in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, he explains that to miss the allegorical sense in which Christ was present in the law. You know, when Moses struck the rock and the water came forth, he says, well, the true lesson of that, the true spiritual food, the true spiritual drink, is the rock was Christ. The rock was the anointed. And Paul makes the point throughout that in light of Christ, this is chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 6, now these things have become typological figures for us so that we should not lust after evil things as indeed those men lusted. And so to take the letter of the law 
And the word here, letter, grammar, it could just be the word scripture. To take it as an end in itself, or as Christ says, you search the scriptures and imagine that they contain life, but he says they point to me. I am the life. They don't contain the life. And to do so is to fall under the same principle which the Israelites lusted after, which caused them to be idolaters. That's what Paul is saying in both Galatians and Corinthians. Paul is describing a fundamental desire connected with the law and elementary principles, he says in 7 to 8, which caused them to go whoring after idols. And so he once again emphasizes that the correct reading is the spiritual reading. An understanding which reads Christ as the end of the lesson. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these things happened to them figuratively and were written for our purpose, for our admonition. They're written down for us figuratively. And so a spiritual or theological reading will find Christ in the Old Testament. But the focus is not on the grammar, it's not on the text per se. When I went to school, they said, okay, what, how do you read the Old Testament? Well, you've got to find the intent of the author, and you've got to set it in its historical setting. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but Paul is saying you have to go beyond that, because the true lesson, the true admonition, is to apply and understand the Old Testament spiritually in light of Christ. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians, in 3.6, 2 Corinthians. It is God who also made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of scripture, but of spirit, not of letter, not of grammar, but of spirit. For scripture slays, but spirit makes alive. When we talk about the authority of the Bible, He's saying God is the authority in whom we have confidence due to Christ and not the grammar, not the words of scripture. So a text-based faith, a book-based faith, or a letter-based competency, Paul says in verse 7, it is a ministry of death, but the spirit and the spiritually-based hermeneutic lifts the veil of the law, Paul says. He's doing something here simultaneously. He's explaining how he reads the Old Testament and he's demonstrating his interpretive method. This spiritual reading is not focused on the historical events. Paul's not denying those events. He's just saying that's not the point. But the point is the lesson to be drawn spiritually, allegorically, for the admonition and edification of his contemporaries and, and I believe us too. Hebrews does the same thing. It says God has spoken in the Old Testament through a multiplicity of sources and in a variety of ways. And this plurality of words and messengers in verse 1 of chapter 1 is displaced with the singular message of Christ. 
And so Hebrews, like Galatians, argues that the former word of the law, it was imperfect, right? Because it came by mediators. He goes through angels, prophets, Moses. These mediators were not the exact representation of the word that is Christ. And so the implication is that the human mediators, in some way, they marked the word. They marred the quality of the message. And this is in contrast to the perfect representation of Christ. This imperfect message, shaped by imperfect messengers, resulted, you know, this is the argument of Hebrews, in its listeners perishing in the desert. It resulted in them missing the seventh day of rest. He says, now you've heard about the true rest. You've heard about the true promised land. Don't fail to enter in. He's reading it allegorically. And so they were bound to death by the imperfection of the message. They're going to die in the wilderness. But now the full message has resulted in freedom from bondage. And of course part of the bondage is a bondage to this elementary former message. As Romans states it, now we have been released from the law having died wherein we were imprisoned, so that we slave in newness of the Spirit and not in Scripture's obsolescence. Chapter 7, verse 6, and we'll refer to this. It is not that the law or the Scriptures are abolished, but their punishing effect or their idolatrous desire, which they accentuate, they aggravate, Paul uses a strange word here. It, it's the word that we would just translate. It's suspended. That the punishing effect of the law of the Old Testament is suspended. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sin, verse 5, which came through the law, acted in our bodily members for the purpose of bearing the fruit of death. The law caused us to bear the fruit of death. And Paul's cumulative description of the law, you know, it includes Moses, Sinai, Jacob, Esau, and the various commands really subsequent to Abraham. The law and scriptures, the grammar, the word, it must include much of the Old Testament. But it is also connected at a deep grammatical level with the elementary principle, the childish language, the idolatrous inclination, with the universal law of sin and death. That's what Paul's arguing in Galatians and Romans. He's saying there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. And at points in Romans, it's not clear, you know, when he talks about the law, is he referring to that prohibition in Genesis, you shall not eat, is referring to the Mosaic law given at Sinai? Is he referring to some sort of natural law? Sometimes we can't tell, and actually it doesn't matter. Because Paul is saying all of these laws reduce to one law, the law of sin and death. Now Origen is an early church father, and I'll just use him to show that what I'm demonstrating here 
the early church fathers are going to pick up this understanding of reading the Old Testament like Paul reads it. And he refers, in fact, you know, Paul in the beginning of Romans 7 is once again using a kind of allegory. Origin's point is to bring about a peace between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is, we seem to have a kind of contradiction between these two books. And Origen says, well, here's the resolution. He's doing what Paul did. He's explaining chapter 7, 1 to 3. Paul's explaining how a woman who is married to a man. The word woman doubtless stands, Origen says, for the soul that was held fast by the law of Moses. And about which it is said, so long as her husband lives, she is bound by the law. But if her husband, the law, has died, he calls her soul, which seems to be bound, released. Therefore it is necessary for the law to die so that those who believe in Jesus should not commit the sin of adultery. The woman, according to Origen, you know, in Paul's illustration, stands for the soul bound by the law. This is all people and thus drawn into idolatrous, adulterous desire by the law. And the dead husband stands for a law that no longer rouses adulterous desire. That is, the law has died. Moses is dead in Christ. He concludes that Moses is dead and that the law is dead and the legal precepts are no longer valid. You know, why aren't we Muslims? Why aren't we Seventh-day Adventists? Why aren't we Pharisees? Because of this understanding, this suspension of the law. I'm quoting Origen, who is preaching a series of sermons on the book of Joshua. And he's explaining, okay, how do we read the book of Joshua? He says we read Joshua just like Paul reads the Old Testament. His point is like this woman defined by the law and by the subject under desire. Now we understand that Joshua in the Hebrew of Joshua is Jesus. It's the same word. And he's saying Joshua is Jesus. This is the way he's going to read the book of Joshua. You know, what is slain by Joshua as far as a Christian is concerned? It's the adulterous sin that afflicts the soul. Quoting Origen again. You will read in the Holy Scriptures about the battles of the just ones, about the slaughter and carnage of murderers, and that the saints spare none of their deeply rooted enemies. If they do spare them, they are even charged with sin, just as Saul was charged because he preserved the life of Agag, king of Amalek. You should understand that the wars of the just, by the method I set forth above, that these wars are waged by them against sin. But how will the just ones endure if they reserve even a little bit of sin. Therefore, this is said of them, they did not leave behind even one who might be saved or might escape. And so the battle 
the Christian has joined with Joshua, Jesus, is against sin. And so the, the surface meaning, you know, the carnage, the wars, and the deep violence of the law, the sinful desire, they are suspended with Christ as hermeneutic key. And so in one sense, Origen says, we can agree with the refrain, sanctify war, but understand the war is against enemies of the soul that blemish the soul and cause it to sin. The battle is one in which you mortify your members and you cut away all evil desires. And you're crowned by Joshua, Jesus. Origen just says it plainly in homily 12. He says that the wars that Joshua waged are to be understood spiritually. That's what Paul says. That's what Hebrews says. That's what John says. Origen references Hebrews to make his case that the entire Mosaic system, inclusive of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the entire worship, he says, they are a type, a shadow of heavenly things. And so too the wars that are waged through Jesus, Joshua, the slaughter of kings and enemies must also be said to be a shadow and type of heavenly things. And so he defends this spiritual reading, this transformation of the law by appealing directly to Paul. He appeals to 1 Corinthians 10, 11. All these things happen to them figuratively. Origen is just expanding on Paul. That's what Origen claims. Referencing Corinthians and Romans. And he makes the case that to cling to a fleshly reading, a literal reading, is like clinging to literal circumcision. It also clings to the wars, to the destruction of enemies, and Israelites seizing kingdoms. And this literal sense makes Joshua, the son of Nun, into the son of God. In other words, you're going to confuse the Old Testament and the New Testament if you don't read it properly. The one who is an outward Jew and who insists on circumcision in Origen's explanation of Paul's allegory, he's committed to reading the violence of Joshua literally and in the process misses what it means. Paul talks about being a Jew secretly. The point is to receive circumcision of the heart, to receive a spiritual circumcision. And so this fleshly reader of scripture misses the lesson of the New Testament. Behold, the kingdom of God is among you. It's within you. And so the idea here, the violent or the non-allegorical or a flat reading or a non-Christocentric hermeneutic of the original readers, if you just read it that way, it will increase the violent work of the law. It will not achieve peace. Origen again says, Then that Israel that is according to the flesh read these same scriptures before the coming of the Lord Jesus, they understood nothing in them except wars and the shedding of blood from which their spirits too were incited to excessive savageries and were always fed by wars and strife. 
But after the presence of my Lord Jesus Christ poured the peaceful light of knowledge into human hearts, since according to the apostle, he himself is our peace, he teaches us peace from this very reading of wars. For peace is returned to the soul if its own enemies, sins and vices, you know, the true enemies, are expelled from it. And therefore, according to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we indeed read these things, we also equip ourselves and are roused for battle, but against those enemies that proceed from our heart. Obviously, evil thought, thefts, false testimony, slanders, these are the adversaries of our soul. And following what this scripture sets forth, we try, if it can be done, not to leave any behind. We're going to absolutely slay the evil thoughts, the thefts. For if we gain possession of these enemies, we shall fittingly also take possession of the airy authorities and expel them from the kingdom. And so Origen concludes that apart from this non-violent, peaceable, allegorical reading of Scripture, this spiritual reading, he says it's questionable that the books of the Jewish history would have ever been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ. He says Christ came to teach peace, so it is only by transforming these tales of physical wars into figures of spiritual wars that these books are made worthy of being read in the churches. That's what he's arguing. For what good, he says, was that description of wars to those to whom Jesus says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you, and to whom it is commanded and said through the apostle, not avenging yourselves, and rather you receive injury, and you suffer offense. I think it comes down to a choice, and this is what Origen says, between the violent fleshly inheritance of the law of Moses or the peace of Christ. And to cling to the fleshly reading, according to Origen, he says this is disqualification from the inheritance of Christ. If therefore you wish to be made worthy to pursue the inheritance from Jesus, and if you wish to claim a portion from him, Origen says, you must first end all wars and abide in peace, so that it may be said concerning the land of your flesh, and this is from Joshua, the land ceased from wars. Origen's Christocentric, allegorical, hermeneutic, it has the peace of Christ at its center. And so to our reading of the Bible, has peace, the peace of Christ, as its continual aim, and the defeat of sin and violence. This is what's worthy of Christ. And so Origen extends the reading of Paul. He finds the cross of Christ in Joshua. And I think this is the key, that it's always a cruciform interpretation. To what then do all these things lead us that the book does not so much indicate to us the deeds of the son of Nun, Joshua, as it represents for us the mysteries of Jesus, my Lord, 
For he himself is the one who assumes power after the death of Moses. He is the one who leads the army and fights against Amalek. What was foreshadowed there on the mountain by lifted hands. Remember Joshua lifting his hands. The time when he attaches them to his cross. Triumphing. He's quoting Colossians 2. Triumphing over the elemental principles. Triumphing over the principalities and powers. Now I've given you one example, but this is far from unusual. It is the hermeneutic that prevailed in the Bible, in the apostolic period. It is the hermeneutic of the early church. And it was the approach even of Judaism in the first century. We see it in Hebrews, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans. We can turn to someone like Philo of Alexandria, a, a Jew contemporary with Paul. And like Paul, they both interpreted scripture allegorically. The literal interpretation with the peculiar meaning it will take on. You know, maybe the first literalist is the heretic Barcian who the church rejected. But then it develops again in the Reformation, prior to which the spiritual reading, that was normative. As David Hart puts it, from Paul through the high Middle Ages, only the spiritual reading of the Old Testament was accorded doctrinal or theological authority. His conclusion, not to read the Bible in the proper manner is not to read it as the Bible at all. He says, Scripture is inspired. That is only when read spiritually. And to read the Bible as if it encourages violence or as if God is violent, it is to miss Christ. It's to miss the New Testament. It's to miss the predominant witness of the church. To read the Bible through the hermeneutic actually born in the 16th century. Hart says it's at once superstitious, it's deeply bizarre. It is this late Protestant invention that is not Christian in any meaningful way. And so the conclusion, we read the Old Testament following the model of Paul, John, Hebrews, the early church fathers, Origen, we read it for our edification in Christ, promoting peace and not violence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.